Welcome to Missed Opportunities for Good, the podcast where we open up the space to have conversations about trends and campaigns at the intersection of marketing, advertising, and impact. Hi, I'm Alana Figalora. Hi, I'm Steph Belsky. We're social impact strategists, colleagues, and friends who are on a mission to revolutionize the industry we love. Today, there's a lot of virtue signaling, greenwashing, cause washing, or companies just saying nothing out of fear of getting it wrong. Whether it's a moment or a movement, it still has to be real. It has to be authentic and aligned with the brand, not just performative. It's about the action being taken that goes along with the messaging. So we're here to highlight who's doing it well, what could be better, and how companies can stop leaving money and the potential for real social change on the table. Our guest today on Creative Conversations is Elliot Kotek. This is a fun one for us because Steph and I both know Elliot through different avenues, and so we get to bring that all together today. Elliot and I were connected years ago through a mutual connection and got the opportunity to work together on some amazing spots for first last year. And Steph and Elliot know each other through the Purpose Collaborative. So thank you, Elliot, for joining us today. Elliot, you are a recognized leader in the power of purposeful content. Elliot is the founder of Impact Creative Agency and production company, The Nation of Artists, which operates on the premise that ideas plus empathy equals impact. I just love that. His work has inspired and also innovated, producing the first ever user-generated feature film, the world's first 3D printing prosthetics lab, and launching a social robot duck for kids going through chemotherapy. And in case those accomplishments aren't enough, (laughs) Elliot's work has racked up basically every award from Emmy nominations, awards at Cannes, South by Southwest Innovation Awards, Clio's, Anthem, AICP, One Show, Webby's, Shorty's, Archived at MoMA, Recognition from the U.S. Congress and House of Representatives, (laughs) Casual. Um, Yeah, (laughs) low-key. And he's directed and produced brand-backed impact films for a variety of brands and nonprofits, including AARP, Accenture, Affleck, Amgen, I feel like we're going in alphabetical order, Campbell, CDC Foundation, (laughs) Fair Labor Association, Hyundai, UNDP, Lego, Quest, Whirlpool, Habitat for Humanity, so many amazing companies. So obviously, it's our honor to have you on the podcast today. Entirely. Welcome. It's so great to be here. No, it's awesome to be with you both. Thank you so much. So let's get to know you a little bit better, Elliot. Why do you do what you do without blatantly saying what you do? The, yeah, I mean, you you know, you kind of mentioned that my motto or the motto for Nation of Artists is ideas plus empathy equals impact. So everything is really in the pursuit of impact. And so we don't do any specific format of storytelling exclusively. Um, We're format agnostic because we want to have that assessment of where can we have impact. And so for us, the way to get there is this kind of combination of ideas plus empathy. Um, On the ideas side, we just acknowledge that great ideas can come from anywhere and great change can come from anyone. 
but it's only when it's delivered with empathy and amplified outside the usual channels using all the different storytelling tools at our disposal that we can truly bring about significant impact. And I think that a lot of people have amazing ideas, but they're so so sure of the idea itself that they sometimes get too excited and forget to take that step to make sure that it's truly the right idea for the right context mm. or the right community. Mm. And then similarly, there are so many people who are just beautiful souls who just have incredible amounts of empathy and have and take the time to sit and listen and handhold and understand and research and that's all well and good, but it's like at some point you need to acknowledge that moment and bring in an idea through which you can commit to an action that can move you forward into impact. Otherwise, I feel like sometimes we can get bogged down with the empathy and spend a lot of time with big feelings and yet not make them into a newer, more powerful new normal than what was there before. Mm. Snaps. Like yeah. I, I love that because you're absolutely right. It's one thing to pull on hard strings, right? It's another thing to say, okay, and this is what you can do about it right now. And giving that yeah. strong, clear call to action, I think is something that both Alana and I are always looking for. Right. And, and that's, that's such a key component that is so lacking sometimes yeah, for you to say that you make that it. the focal point. I mean, it's just, it's brilliant. Yeah. And that's, it's kind of interesting in terms of what you both talk about on this podcast. It's like sometimes that action is inherently built into the storytelling. Right. It's already happened and we're reporting on it later and this is what happened and this is how it went. Other times there's, and or a call to action that puts that responsibility on the people watching the spot mm. to say, this is what we think can happen if you all go here. Mm. So we would love you to take that next step and do that next thing and whatever it is. And so there are different ways that that action can take place and that impact can happen. People think sometimes that they need all the money to make all the campaign elements that can then bring about all that change. But sometimes if you don't have all the money and you don't have all the pieces, you can still at least put something out into the world that can catalyze a different community to take that next step with you. Some people feel like they can't take the first step without having all the answers, but I think it's just equally valid to sometimes do the first step and open up the question or open up the idea for other people to take into the phase of action. Yeah, there's still value in the inspiration in that sense. Yeah, it shouldn't stop you from doing anything. Yeah, for sure. I love that. So our next question, what first drew you to impact work? Well, I mean, I wish I could tell you that I was always motivated by lofty, <laughs> you know, larger than self goals. I don't I don't know that all of us in this in this world, in this in this sector have that in our DNA from growing up. I think you can start with a good moral compass or you can have that fed to you by interactions with parents and teachers and other communities during your upbringing. But for me, it was just a series of yeses. I always just accepted what anything I thought that was cool, that was in collab. I think the, the cool through line for me was that I re and what I realized later on is that what I really value is creativity and community. Mm. 
And project by project, there was a pattern emerging where I wanted to dive in with creative people. I wanted to form community with them. I wanted to collaborate with them on something. And so I, I started off, I was a journalist. I was interviewing some of the world's most accomplished people, not just celebrities, but certainly celebrities and movie stars and stuff like that as well. But then also like Jose Moran, Luis Moreno Ocampo, the first uh, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court at The Hague, or Dr. Muhammad Yunus, uh, who established the Grameen Bank and won the Nobel Prize. So I had all these kind of interesting people filter through that I got to meet, and that was addictive. And when I even talked to A-list actors about their mentors, about causes they believed in, things that they committed their time to and their resources to outside of the projects that they were working on. I found that that stuff really resonated, not just with me, but at the time with the audiences on YouTube where we were posting the videos and elsewhere. And those were the videos that were getting the most engagement. Mm -hmm. And so it just encouraged us to keep diving further and further into that world. And then so we started collaborating on that first ever user-generated film called 140, myself and Frank Kelly in Ireland, got 140 people to sign up using Twitter. They were in 140 separate locations, 27 countries, I think, five continents, et cetera, to all film 140 seconds where they were on a single day. And so that was using social media to do something constructive and bring community together. And similarly, we started working on a documentary called Queen Mimi, uh, myself and director Yanid Roka, who I'd been at Lee Strasberg Theatre Institute with in New York. And he was working as a barista in, in Santa Monica at Cafe Lux. And across the road, there was this laundromat where this homeless woman had spent 18 years sleeping between two rows of washer washers and dryers and had formed friendships with people who'd come in to get their laundry done by her, which included people like Zach Galifianakis and Renee Zellweger. And so he started to bring her pastries and stuff in the morning when he was opening up the store and she would wash the barista rags in return. And so they had this beautiful symbiotic relationship. And then he just started shooting her with his cell phone, which then led to something more formal that we worked on that was ended up being acquired by Netflix and is now on Amazon. But but that was also the strength of community coming together to help this woman who had spent 20 years on the streets and another 20 years in a laundromat. And it was just inspiring to have projects like that come up and then we were exposed to, you know, projects where technologies like 3D printing were helping people in Sudan, which was like one of the first kind of branded content pieces before the term branded content mm. was offered up. And Intel at the time had a thank you card at the end. It just said thank you to Intel and to this other company called Presapart, an engineering firm. But they took a real backward seat in a back seat in terms of branding, mm -hmm. and yet it was celebrated really widely. Won the titanium line at Cannes, and at the time, the ads that it was up against were the new set of Old Spice commercials, which were hilarious and awesome, but a different breed of commercial. And the other commercial that was doing really well at that time, which has become an all-time classic, was the Jean Claude Van Damme splits. Epic yes. splits oh, where he was like straddled between two <laughs> Volvo trucks. And 
And so that year at the AICP Awards or whatever, it was like our spot about Daniel, this kid in Sudan and mm. this sending out of 3D printers to the Nuba Mountains to help this kid tied for best in show with Jean-Claude Van Damme epic splits, right? It was like, it's not where it is now where there is so much on offer at Cannes that is in the for good category. Right, yeah where everyone feels a need to or seems to see a need to and a responsibility to do something that is more socially conscious. Um, And so I was, you know, lucky to be producing content at that time. And so it was just kind of project by project that this kind of kind of happened. And then I like to say, you know, if you have a passion and it leads you to something constructive, then that something constructive is essentially your purpose. And if you tell people about your purpose, then you'll find your people and with your people, anything is possible. So it's just been a journey from that. Four P's. That. <laughs> snaps. <laughs> yes. And then so you're good. fond of the snaps. Uh, she is. It's true. It's true. You know stuff well. I, I totally have another sidebar question, but this also ties in. Speaking of passion. Yes. Are there any issue areas that you're particularly passionate about? Are you issue area agnostic? Yeah, I'm fairly issue area. Like I used to say that there were things that I didn't feel like it was my place to play Mm. in. And then because people reached out and I felt like I could help them out at the time that I had the right resources that they were looking for or, or some of the right connections to things that they might be needing or felt like I'd been down a road and could share some shared experience or knowledge that of something that I'd already experienced with them that would be helpful. I ended up getting involved in many more issues than I thought I would ever tackle. Yeah. Little Miss Sumo, which was a Netflix original, obviously it's about gender parity. Like you, if this was a video, you would see that I do not necessarily look like I should speak to that issue. And so I wasn't the person on the panels or any of that, you know, and the amazing young filmmaker, Matt Kay and, his producers, Dee Dee and Bex and Andrew Carver, like they were just all so fantastic. And so they could all speak to the issue a lot better than I could directly, but I could help along the way. And so that film about young Japanese woman seeking to be the first professional female sumo wrestler in a country where women were not allowed to be professional sumos, despite it being their national sport, You know, that led to Hiori Khan, the athlete, being named one of the 100 most influential women in the world by BBC, alongside people like Megan Rapinoe. And so it was, like, important that that got made. And mm. and her work remains important, Hiori's work. And similarly with Black Boys, which came out in September 2020, like that was uh, a Peacock original at its launch and dealt with how America treats young black men and how how it invests in young black men if they show, you know, incredible artistic ability or they show like sporting prowess, then they get a lot of resources right. sent to their direction and scholarships and other things. But we're not supporting them in their education at a systemic level. We're not supporting them on a socio-emotional level. We're expecting them to be tougher than they are. There's all these different biases that come into play and it's just not right. And so 
that was a project again that I kind of came on board to help and produce. But and we're almost finished with a sequel to it. We're almost finished with Black Girls, directed by a young black female filmmaker, yeah. B. Monet out of the Tribeca Queen Collective. And so it's just really been an interesting journey that I've gotten to do these projects. Mm-hmm. Likewise, AARP got me to do to direct a spot with Kareem Abdul Jabbar about trailblazing black athletes. And at first I was kind of like, it's wrong of you to come to me. I may have shared this with Alana before. I was like, why are you coming to me to do this? And then I was kind of also like, well, you know, I'm going to bring a collection of people to this project that will just represent what I, you know, what I hope to be a significant representation of diversity and how it can work together to make this project happen and invest in that with significant intention. And so it's been a really interesting ride. We did a project around the extreme statistical abuse of trans women, especially in Louisiana, a project called House of Tulip, that there was a a young filmmaker, Sydney Sweeney, who finished that project, which was fantastic. The statistics about the outmeasured abuse of these humans is insane and just you know shouldn't be tolerated and so just lending support to projects like that again like things that I'd never thought would cross my desk yeah. and so yeah I, I consider myself now to be issue agnostic if I can help I can help but there are some things like American democracy being from Australia I don't feel like I really have a grasp on what American democracy is and how to play in that space so <laughs> we don't either Erica really know how to play in that space I mean let's be honest I think everyone's a little confused with American democracy at the moment <laughs> gone off the rails a bit let's be <laughs> so you know I know what I want right I yeah. just want people to be respectful of other people I remember John Stewart's kind of said something like, you know, we we keep hearing all these people screaming on the left. We keep hearing all these people screaming on the right. What we need is the moderates in the middle to get up and start screaming. (laughs) It's like, which is obviously anathematic to their persona, right, as a moderate. But you just need people who can bring other people together to be the loudest people in the room. And that's hard. That's not a natural state of affairs, but it's where, and same for me, like I'm not the loudest person, but... I really want people to reach a level of tolerance with each other. I don't, you know, I think that's like a first step on the path to appreciation of each other, but like even just a tolerance for each other where you can be near each other, be with each other and just have an acceptance that there's another person with different thoughts and different feelings and that's okay. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. And it it almost is in a way too a through line in your work in that, a lot of the work you seem to work on is really diverse and inclusive. And I know yeah. from working with you as well, that having that representation on set behind the camera is also just as important. So I think there is value to even specifically in all the products you mentioned too, where there may, these may not have been projects that you would have thought would have come to you right as a white man, but allyship was really important as well. And so being able to use your platform to help elevate these voices and support these projects is also just as important because you are bringing in the necessary voices who have those lived experiences to work on those projects and supporting them in their journey, which I think is also a really important thing to know. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. You never know what the right thing to say is because even allyship doesn't feel like the right word for most, for a lot of people a lot of times. And sometimes I err on the side of, of inaction when I feel like something is overwhelming or when I don't want to just plaster something that seems like a token act, even if it's 
meant with sincerity and good intentions. Mm. Like I find that sometimes I get stuck with what the right thing to do is just like a lot of people. Same. I mean, (laughs) raising my hand, I do as well. I think that's really common. And I think that's also why having these conversations and highlighting all the different types of work, I think is so important. I think it goes back to that idea that a lot of companies are afraid to take action too, because companies have a even larger platform than an individual as well. And so they're afraid to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing because consumers are so quick to jump down and cancel culture this and all of that. So I think, A, we need to give each other a little more grace and give companies a little more grace sometimes as long as people are trying and and have the right intentions. And sometimes it's hard to totally understand that. And then as long as we're all learning and growing and trying to do better, I think it's helping move it in the right direction. Yeah, totally agree. I think collaboration is the key to that, right? Like mm-hmm. opening yourself up to say, I want to do this with some other people. Let's right. invite in some other organizations, even if we don't end up all agreeing on the best path forward and the, that maybe the path forward taken wasn't the right one. Uh, but we all kind of came into it with a collaborative intention that led to the decisions being made in the first place. And that also is like, yeah, I mean, as long as you're honest, right? Like as long as there's honesty to it and not an ignorance or a naivete that you think that you can handle it yourself. It's those, I think those people, they think they have the right answer who offer it up again, without that kind of empathic ear who get into trouble, right? Because if you've engaged the right stakeholders along the journey, or then you're much less likely to be facing accusations when it comes to the launch or the reception to the project that you're launching. hundred percent. It's knowing who those right partners are to collaborate and knowing what you do, understanding what you don't know and being willing to That's right. bring in the partners who have that expertise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And by you showcasing those voices, you are, you're stepping back and saying, you know, I'm helping to bring this together, but it's your story and I want you to tell it and I want to help amplify it. And that's, that's powerful. So we know you've done a lot of work. What do you think is the most impactful project you've worked on that you're most proud of? I think my favorite still is my special Aflac duck project. And also because of the number of stakeholders involved in the collaboration that Mm -hmm. made that happen, right? You had Sproutel, who are now called Empath Labs, which is the studio in Rhode Island who are manufacturing, I don't want to call them toys, they're social robots and technologies, but essentially they look like toys for kids going through difficult situations. They have Jerry the Bear for kids who are dealing daily with um, type 1 diabetes. And then they created with Aflac this social robot duck called My Special Aflac Duck that we and they spoke with child life psychologists and oncologists and siblings of kids going through cancer and the kids going through cancer and the parents of the kids going through cancer. And, and just all these different people were heard. And even when kids said, oh, I want this duck to purr like a kitten, that suggestion was taken on board. Can we make this happen, right? And so they put a vibrational speaker in it that when you hold the duck a certain way and pat it a certain way that it starts to vibrate and no. make this little purring noise. And it's just gorgeous, right? It's amazing. And so it was just this incredible project. It was honored with so many different things, right? Like it was on the list of Time Magazine's Inventions of the Year and also won a couple of Can Lions and was named like PR Week's like 
you know, part of the 25 campaigns of the decade and things like that. But it was Carol Cohn, who's like, obviously, Steph, we both are part of her Purpose Collaborative, but she was the one who brought all the different players in. They worked with multiple PR agencies around the launch, which happened very intentionally at first at CES with the prototypes to see if technologists would respond to this as a piece of technology. Then I was taken around to child life psychologist conferences in, in Chicago to make sure that that community was on board with using it as a tool with their kids, that it was received by the kids themselves. So we traveled back and forth to Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And sometimes we went without the original people who made the the device itself. And so we were getting feedback as well, which was really interesting mm. and getting different reactions from parents, et cetera. And so it was just this beautiful coming together and with the marketing and the CSR team of Aflac and the backing of the CEO. And so sometimes what we do is just with the CSR, corporate social responsibility or ESG team or global citizenship team or whatever nomenclature you want to use, (laughs) which usually has a different, maybe a 10th, maybe less of the budget that the marketing team has. And so when you have the marketing team aligned and the CEO saying that this is important Mm -hmm. and the CEO then giving credit to the project for raising the reputation of the firm or the company by 2% or whatever it was and and telling the investors in the company and the stockholders in the company that this was important for the company to do, even though it's not core to their business from the outside looking in. That was just a really awesome energy to have around a project. And then the commitment that they showed to have this like close to two years of research and development phase and then fund the production of the ducks once they were ready to go into production. And then we went and distributed them to multiple hospitals around the country and it ended up in every state of the country with, uh, I can't remember how many, but like close to, I think like 12,000 ducks were distributed to kids going through chemo over this time. And so it was just so well-intentioned, so well-constructed, even to the point where later on there was like, okay, who who gets hired, who gets catalyzed to write the white paper, mm. research paper on the project, working out whether the duck is working as a distraction therapy tool. And there's science to suggest that distraction therapies reduce the stress in the kids to receive the chemo, which ends up meaning that the chemo is more likely to be successful. Like Mm. what are all the payoffs of this? And so it's just one of those projects where it felt like all the right things happened because the right time was given to them, the right people were listened to, right collection of people were, were heard and there was intention to make sure that it had a real impact and it had this kind of backing of, of everybody involved. And I think everyone who was involved in that project just loves that collaborative aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And it was really the sum of the parts that made it just such an incredible experience. Like I, I literally, you know, love the people that were involved in that project. I think they're just awesome, awesome humans. The other thing that's amazing about this campaign is it still is running today, right? That you can still totally. get the app like that. Yeah, so it's like, not, it's, exactly, it's, it's, it's like innovation. Expanded. It's not just a like one-off campaign that yeah. existed to win awards. It's 
a brand actually taking a stand and doing something and sticking with it because it does have a lasting impact and they're continuing to have a totally. positive ex- impact on these yeah. kids. It's expanded to other kids who have sickle cell. Mm-hmm. During COVID, it expanded in terms of like the tools in the toolkit that the duck had and it ended up having to have like a little COVID kit that went out with it. Mm-hmm. And then there's like all these other kind of different applications for it. It traveled to Japan, Aflac work in both the US and Japan. It was just this incredible thing, but it wouldn't have been able to happen had they not had a legacy history of investing in childhood cancer initiatives, yeah. right? Totally. They had 20 years of donating in the space. They'd never done anything that was the kid patient centric first or so consumer facing Mm -hmm. it was usually the sponsoring of wings at hospitals like at children's healthcare of atlanta it was usually you know sponsoring research and professorial chairs and other things and papers but and and lobbying and other things that to try and increase the amount of funding going to pediatric cancer initiatives within the National Institute of Health budgets and things like that, they weren't as visible. And so to do something that was so visible, that was kind of the genius of Carol is looking at what they'd been doing as part of their DNA for 20 years leading up to that moment so that that moment could never be thought of as a stunt because it was something that they'd invested so heavily in to the tune of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over those last 20 years. Yeah, It's, it's incredible. What a case study of what happens when marketing and CSR combine their powers, right? That's a soapbox that I think we can stand on all day long is that there are typically two separate budgets, like you said, one that has not nearly an eighth of the budget that marketing gets. And then you're saying, if you really want to tell these stories and you want to share this impact, you need to invest and leadership needs to buy in and it needs to come from the top down and being able to involve other stakeholders. I mean, it's just... It's really, it's such a testament to you, to Carol, to everybody that was involved. And like Alana said, this is not a one-off, right? This is still happening to this day. And it's so awesome being able to spend like three years on a project, right? Like things that have that sort of longevity to them. There's a few now, a few clients that I've had that have outlasted just the initial CMO or other C-suiter who brought that project into play. And I just find that that's remarkable because if you are a new CMO in a role or a new head of a CSR department, you do want to put your stamp on things and to show the reason why you're there versus your predecessor. And I get that. But the reality is that CMO, I think, is still the shortest term average out of anyone in the C-suite at about two years, or that's what the statistic used to be. And so it was really hard to have consistent investment over time in a single message or a single campaign or a single slogan. And so those sorts of brands that have a longevity to their programming, pretty rare and pretty admirable. And right, we can talk about this sort of stuff all day for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Truth. What's the biggest challenge you're facing right now Mm. as it relates to impact work? Yeah. You know, I, I think with most things, it's just a factor of time and money, right? I've got plenty of projects I'd love to get done. I've got a big board of ideas that I think are worth pursuing. 
I have a bunch of issues that I want to tackle. I want to confront hatred. I want to bring a human face to the supply chain issues. I want to address fast fashion versus slow fashion, toxic masculinity versus modern masculinity. It doesn't have to be toxic. It can move to modern, like what that means. I want to be sneaky good in a whole lot of different ways. And I want to just continue bringing that wider, more human perspective to all sorts of traditionally less accessible subjects, science and technology and innovation and other things that can really just make that world a little bit better, make people a little bit more tolerant of each other. And so, yeah, so I think it's just a a question of time and money. I would like to have all the money because I think I would do all the good things with it. So (laughs) uh, it's a really funny thing is like money itself, it just unlocks you know, people don't talk about it, but it's an unlocker, right? Like I could take some of these ideas that we have in spec and go and just do them and not be inhibited and just see if all this stuff that I have rattling inside my brain and the brain of other people, you know, with whom we come into contact and just see if we can give them some legs and see just quite how much impact we can have. Yeah. Pretty simple. (laughs) You heard it here first. So if you're listening to you money, all send it Elliot's way so we can all <laughs> change tips. the world together. Yes, please. I will treat them with transparency and show you where the money goes and I will track the impact and deliver good things. All the it's good true. things. Yep. And I know there are I'm a lot board. of passion projects that deserve to see the light of day from that board of yours. So hopefully, hopefully we get to see some, some fun stuff coming from you. Yeah, there's tons of good stuff coming. And all right. So before we jump into the awesome campaign that you've brought us, we just, for our listeners, want to quickly review our criteria. So the first criteria that we always look at is alignment. Two is partnerships. Call to action and transparency. Engagement. And lastly, optimization and amplification. So on that note, Elliot, if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about the um, campaign you brought us today, after you give us the quick summary, and then we'll go through our criteria live and evaluate it. I I just became very self-aware that I'm Australian and I brought you a beer commercial and (laughs) I did not realize that right until this very moment. And I just feel so cliche right now, (laughs) but you know, I I think I've mentioned to you before, like I have so many PSAs and uh, that I love work that's been done by traditional agencies like Gray and and Ogilvy that have been around organ donation and around reducing gun violence and and things like that. And there's just so many that I can point to that I just like just chill up when I when I watch those. Mm-hmm. Still, even the ones that are like a decade old, and I just think that there's so much amazing creativity in that space. And and obvious alignment, like everything is direct. It's a direct call to action on direct subjects and doesn't kind of, you know, mix messages. But I wanted to bring you a case of a brand doing something interesting. And in this case, it was Heineken and the campaign's called Worlds Apart. And I believe the agencies involved in it were um, publicists um, or publicists, depending on who you speak to in the UK (laughs) and Edelman working together on it. And in this campaign, it was 
bringing people who reflected different backgrounds and different realities coming together to do something together, in this case, build a bar and uh, and have a conversation with someone that they might not have otherwise bumped into had it not been for the wizards behind the, <laughs> the advertising industry who decided that this needed to happen. So the whole premise was that was that how do you encourage people to be more open, right? And, and what I like about it, at the time, the kind of tagline for Heineken was also open your world. Mm. And Heineken is one of those beers that you can get everywhere. And so, yes, people have become more sophisticated in their tastes. They might have more micro brews that they drink now and things like that. But Heineken was one of those, is one of those beers where no matter where you are in the world, no matter what continent you're on, it's accessible. And so them having the tagline of open your world and wanting to do a project that involved getting people to feel more open with each other, I felt was like really on point. Yeah, I have criticisms of the campaign too. It's not a perfect campaign, but I thought that the way that it was done, the way they brought real people together to have real conversations was really worth doing and is still remains a worthwhile spot. And I think it speaks as, unfortunately speaks as relevantly or with as much relevance today as it did back then. And so, yeah, so check it out and then we can talk about it. Yeah, it is interesting, right? I think it's from 2017, if um, yeah, this link is when it came years. out. And the fact that that's six years ago and these issues are, if anything, even more pronounced now right. <laughs> than they were. I mean, obviously they were then as well, but that we have, still haven't moved far enough forward is interesting because you could probably run this again today and have the same experience. Yeah. Which is interesting. It would almost actually be interesting to see. I was going to say, I, I would actually love to see that. I would love to see Heineken especially, bring this back. Yeah. Yeah, especially in the wake of everything that's happened with Bud Light right. and <laughs> and exploring like those two th- two campaigns alongside each other in terms of what went right versus what went wrong or was it just a case of timing too or, you know, what that issue is. And also it's an interesting time because – in the US at least, Modelo is now the number one selling beer. Mm. So it's not like it got, like Bud Light got knocked off its number one stoop by another American beer. It's not Coors or Miller or something stepping into that spot. It's a, a beer that is of um, Mexican origin, right? So it's, mm-hmm. incre- it's an interesting time that like people's feelings and where they're placing them and what mm. they're doing as a result and where they're shifting their consumerism. Yeah. Yeah. And I I love, you know, I'm thinking about what you said earlier, Elliot, about, about people just tolerating each other. And in this particular campaign, it's not even that they're just tolerating each other, right? Like people, some of, some of the people end up hugging each other at the end and like really getting so vulnerable. And, and I think like also giving them an, an activity that is, you know, seemingly like unbiased, I guess, like, like do something with your hands, build something together, a physical activity that they can do and, and that they need to cooperate and, and work with each other. It's just, it's, it's so brilliant. 
Yes, I'll, t- I'll tee it up in a nutshell. Thanks, Steph. So it's like two people from different backgrounds. Let's say one person is a environmentalist and the other person is a climate science uh, denier. They build a bar together and then they open a globe, which is like a mini bar kind of thing, and take out a couple of beers, put them on the bar, and then watch a video where you find out about each other and then decide whether you want to stay and have a beer with the other person or not. And so that was one example was that was, I think, the most evenly matched example. On another issue, there was a woman who considers herself a strong feminist with feminist ideals and a man who is kind of seems to be at odds with the current wave of feminism. And they do that same project together and then find out more about each other through this short film and then decide whether to sit down with each other and have a beer. And then the third couple that I'm thinking of had a man who said he was not necessarily very open towards transgender community paired with a trans woman who had served in the military um, who um, they did that same project together without that knowledge of their backgrounds until they watched that same little video and then came together and decided whether to have a beer together or not. And, and so that was like the cool thing too, right, is that they used their product as a device, Yes. right? Like they used the beer as a tool to open up conversation between two people. And so it just felt like it was a nice extension of what a beer often is supposed to be about, totally. right? Sure, alcohol gets abused and there's no joke about that. But in, you know, social settings, you know, sitting around like that Australian mentality that I grew up with was like sharing a beer. It could have been anything, right? But having that time together around something where you get to joke around, play, discuss, converse, just put everyone on a more of a level playing field, right? Was, there was a reason why prime ministers would go and have a classic Aussie pint or an Aussie, <laughs> you know, with with people at their local bar, right? It made them accessible. It made them normal. It was a way for people to connect. Yeah. And the activations that happened as a result of this spot at different bars at summer festivals at the time with Heineken employees was all all like really nice extensions of this. And then there were also packaging, limited edition packaging activations that happened as well. So there was an open your world manifesto and a world map that went on limited edition labels and packaging. And so it was thought about as more than just the stunt itself of bringing these different people together and having them build this bar and having the conversation but I feel like it really works and I feel like it still really works. Totally. It reminds me the actual act of building the bar is a way to bring them together and break down those barriers. Reminds me of John Levy's book, You're Invited. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but yeah, he would host dinners. dinner. Par- have you been? Of course yeah. you have. This doesn't surprise me at all. I don't know why. I'm <laughs> surprised. Of course you've been. Well, but- I'm not sure if we're allowed to talk about it. I assume we are. Yeah, I'm sure. I imagine, right? It's not like you're like giving yeah. people the secrets. I don't know, are you? But tell me more about it. How do I get invited? But his whole concept of having these dinner parties where you have to cook the meal to bring people together, not talk about what you do, about the act of doing something physically first and how that breaks down barriers. And you think of so many examples of that just in life and how you connect with people. So you have now trust somebody because you've shared an experience, you've done something together, and then 
you're more open to hearing things and to your point, the shared connection of a beer and all, and all of that as well. It's so interesting. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of this talk at festivals and thought leadership conferences and other things at the moment where they say X is built at the speed of trust. Relationships are built at the speed of trust. Mm-hmm. Progress is built at the speed of trust. Mm-hmm. How do we develop this trust? What's important? What do we think of as being important? Do we think mm-hmm. performance is important to develop that speed of trust? Do we think that volatility is important or vulnerability is important to develop that speed of trust? Honesty benevolence and John really goes into all of those things in his talks how there are certain things we'll accept like we think as a as a mentality in business that performance is number one mm-hmm. that that's how we get we trust someone because they're performing really well but in reality if someone is doing their job really well 29 days and then doesn't do so well on the 30th day or the 31st day or even the 32nd day like we might let that slide and see what's up and see how we can support them getting back on track. So performance is something that we can have some wiggle room around. But if the person in some setting lies to us, if that person we're working with lies to us, it's really hard for us to then trust them again. And so then performance is actually outranked by our ability to trust someone which is also why a lot of jobs happen because they're ref- people get referred by existing networks is because there's that level of trust there. It's not just about performance and merit, right, mm-hmm. which is, which is kind of interesting. And then the only time that John talks about where people can break that trust based on honesty is when it's benevolent, when it's done for your good. So if a friend tells you we're just popping up to an apartment somewhere to pick up a hard drive or something like that that you need and you get up there and they all scream, surprise, it's actually your birthday, (laughs) then that person broke your trust because they broke the honesty, but they did so because they were doing something for you. (laughs) It was benevolent. So really the quicker we can establish an act of benevolence towards someone, do something for someone, even though they're asking nothing of us or helping someone out because they've asked us for help, that's a really quick way to establish trust, which is why John has those dinners is where like you all have to help out and help each other to make Mm -hmm. that dinner happen and it breaks that barrier down and establishes that close proximity and that sense of trust and reliance on each other that is essentially an act of benevolence that enables you all to get fed that night (laughs) so he actually ranks it as benevolence then honesty and then performance which is a disruption Mm -hmm. to what we would normally think is the case in business which is really fascinating. But yeah, he's really great. And then the, the same thing around what we talk about with Aflac in terms of stakeholders, they had an insight. Heineken had an insight. They wanted to know if they could create more openness. So they went to a behavioral psychologist, Dr. Chris Brower at Goldsmiths University, and he identified that some of the characteristics for creating common ground were tolerance, empathy, creating mutual goals and shared identities. And so those were the factors that they tried to then imbue into or adopt into the spot, right? And then, you know, on the back end, they also partnered with a group called Human Library, which I didn't know anything about them from, yeah, I didn't know about them from the spot. I didn't remember any association with them, but that was the nonprofit that they used to give the campaign that kind of nonprofit credence, which is a a group that enables you to borrow a human, essentially. You can book in a half-hour conversation with someone 
different with people of different backgrounds and it helps you find that common ground and build tolerance. So all in all, I just thought they really had a nice aspect to the way they handled the campaign. Mm. Well, and as opposed to like bringing in one cancer nonprofit or one, right? Like that's, that's really thinking outside the box, but still very much aligned with the project. That's so smart. Yeah. That's great. Because it's not a recent campaign, it's harder for us to quit Google knowing the additional activations that were part of it. So it's super helpful knowing that you knew those other parts of it really helped understand their follow through and their amplification and cross promotion. Okay, so we can start at the beginning. Alignment is the impact aligned with the brand values and goals. And as you mentioned, it was very much in line, it sounds like, with Heineken's tagline at the time as well. Yeah, open your world. Right. Beer sparks conversation. It was being used, even though they're ultimately selling a product, which is beer. The beer for them is not just a product. It's also a device that sparks and creates this compassion and openness and helps people, you know, talk about and find these similarities more than their differences. Yeah. Really, yeah. really making the beer the hero there yeah. of, of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And also because it's a global product, right? right? So you're going to encounter so many different types of people. So why not use that as a tool? Absolutely. It's also interesting, just in the quick Googling, I didn't realize that it came out the same year or not long after the Pepsi Kendall, oh, yeah. Kendall Jenner, Jenner disaster <laughs> campaign, which is interesting because that was meant to be a uniting your world. And this is a completely different approach, similar tagline idea, I guess, in a way but approach from a completely different angle that clearly has a much more impactful message. I will say, experience. I will say though, that there is an article saying that this campaign is worse for you than the Kendall Jenner campaign, but we're just too dumb to know it. Interesting. Oh, I Like that's literally the title of the article is like that this campaign is why the Heineken ad is worse than the Kendall Jenner ad and why you're too dumb to know it. Like Wait, does it tell like you that. why? Well, I think like one of the reasons that they say is that there's a, a and this is really getting pretty technical, is that there's an, a, an assumption that these people are on, are equally different. So in the environmental case, it's fine. Someone is for climate science. Someone is against climate science, it seems. But in the case where there is a trans woman and someone who is intolerant of trans folk, one person is saying that they deny the other people their rights. Right. But the other person isn't denying the other person anything. Yeah. Right. They're just seeking to be they're not even seeking necessarily to be understood or identified by them. They just you know, right. want to live they're their life and be a happy life. human. Right, right. So yeah. it might not be as equal. They might not be equal in what they're bringing to the table yeah. to have that conversation. There's not a get, barrier in the same way from both sides as withholding them from wanting to participate in the conversation. One person is already going to be more open potentially. Yeah, and so those sorts of things were seen as being more one-sided, even though when you watch the spot, it's done with such skill that it presents to be an equal kind of trade. And I think that the ad is still as effective and still is super positive and meaningful, despite that criticism. Yeah, can't wait to read that article. That makes sense. So then, you know, the second criteria that we look at is if there's talent involved or an influencer partnership. And I, I think what's so unique about this is that it isn't 
talent driven, right? Unlike Kendall Jenner, this is real people, ostensibly. Yeah, I think it could only work if it was real voices, right? Who are passionate, people who are passionate about certain issues, not people who are on the fence about them, but have a point of view. And so I think that, yeah, not having influencers here was the only path forward. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Agreed. Nonprofit partnership. I know you mentioned that they partnered with Human Library. So that seems like a pretty strong and aligned partnership. Were they just amplifying the work that Human Library does as a partner? Or do you know what their partnership kind of looked like with them? I don't. From what I understand, they were were consulted in the device, how it was used, how the conversations were set up, what kind of Mm. things that they wanted them to talk about. Because Human Library have this experience in setting up activations where you get to have these conversations with people Mm -hmm. who come from different backgrounds Mm -hmm. than you. And then I think what happened was in the activations that followed, that Human Library helped in the design phase of those conversations too, and that there were different touch points that the Heineken employees could have with Human Library. That's my understanding. Um, What's interesting is that there's no, I don't know if you're getting this up to this on your next point, so I apologize, but like there was no call to action directing people toward Human Library. Like you have to find that out. I I don't think that that was front and centre, unless it was front and centre in the in the manifesto or in the activations. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was Googling while you were talking and it looks like they found a screenshot. I don't know if this was from the originally from the Heineken website or where this was posted, mm-hmm. um, but they announced the human library partnership and it looks like they did a couple special events specifically tied with human library. And then they link to discovering the books available for selection <laughs> and explain that you can talk to a person or a book to be loaned out to have a conversation about breaking down barriers. So that is interesting that they seem to have some sort of a conversation around that. Oh, very cool. And hopefully there was some sort of donation made from Heineken to Human Library, but we don't know. Hopefully don't they know. at least paid we them for their so work for that the, they did with them. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah follow through to that same point that we talked about earlier too and not knowing if there was any sort of donation or monetary investment made if this was a one-off campaign or long-term and it would be cool to bring it back I don't know I think I think there might be a missed opportunity there to see it again or or test it in a different city since that was based out of London what does that look like Mm. in a polarized U.S. right now right since right there's so many areas that could take place What I thought was super interesting was Open Your World had been their tagline for some time and was strangely abandoned the year following this campaign. Oh, interesting. Ah. Yeah. And I don't know why. I think like, I don't know what I haven't read into it, but but it's no longer their their tag. I wonder if the CMOs changed. (laughs) To your point earlier of how long CMOs last if someone else just came in and wanted to make their mark. Call to action. We just talked about there's not a... Yeah, Direct no, call to action, right. though, mm-hmm. maybe Just potentially in their activations that you mentioned on the same page that I found this other screenshot, it looks like, well, this isn't a real call to action, but it says, so raise a bottle with the person next to you because a stranger is just a friend you haven't had a hold kind of again with yet. Open your world. So I yeah, guess exactly. that's telling you to the have a beer. The call to action is to open your world, right? And uh, to open a beer. Open Nothing a beer really about it. sharing. But yeah. isn't this interesting too, is like, Love the campaign, didn't drink more Heineken as a result of it, personally. Right, yeah. Love Dove, right? Love all the Dove stuff. 
have never, I think, bought Dove. I'm curious about you two behaviorally. Has it changed your behavior? Do either of you do either of you own Dove products in your house? I periodically buy the Dove's men's soap. Yes. For my husband. Same. I like the bigger bottle. I only really buy it when they have like a bigger bottle available because I refuse to buy a smaller pump bottle. I, need, I try yeah. to buy the larger bottles because of climate. But um, the sustainability piece of it. I have huge brand affinity, support everything they do, but I guess really not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily obviously. always correlated with the dollars. Like it's still... And of course, like one of my favorite campaigns of all time is the always like a girl campaign. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I don't buy their products. Which I guess, I mean, okay, now I'm totally going to derail us from criteria because I feel like we've hit a lot of these things. But it, yeah. it is interesting in that sense. And I know we all often speak to how these sort of campaigns are so important because it can build brand affinity. It builds employability, all these things. But even as individuals working in the space, if, if it's not changing our purchasing behaviors, what does that look like? like? What does that mean? Exactly. We have reverence and respect and love for these campaigns. And yet it's not shifting our behavior necessarily. Well, and, who's, and is there who's, still value to having these conversations and brands putting money behind them? Because is it is there enough value in the sense that if mindset and behaviors are shifted because of all the Dove Real Beauty campaigns. If they're having real impact in that space, is that actual social impact value enough to warrant standing behind these causes if it's not changing people's purchasing decisions? That said, if I'm in a store and they have a limited availability and they have Dove and two other also more commercially available pro, um, products, I am pretty sure I would buy Dove. A hundred percent agree. I agree. Well, and also if, you know, you have, I don't know, a product like dish soap, right? Where you know that there is one particular brand who supports wildlife because you see that cute little baby duck on... <laughs> on on the packaging and you're like yeah i want to go save wildlife i'm gonna buy this particular product if dove were to say we are continuing to our commitment to girls empowerment and every product you purchase a percentage of the proceeds always goes to women's empowerment xyz are some of the nonprofits that we support do you think that would change your behavior that you would then purchase more products? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure what the answer is, but I know I'm a very conscious consumer. And so I think sometimes it's just where I see the greatest good, right? Or I might just choose that option if I can afford to financially, or I might wait for a time to buy it when the price comes down because it's a certain time of the year, you know? But I think these sorts of questions are where I find a lot of interest when we're kind of sculpting a campaign yeah. and that comes back to calls to action and things like that. But mm -hmm. it's like, where are we going to get behavioral shift and is an ad the right tool? And so that's the thing about being asset agnostic is a lot of people love making documentaries. We love making documentaries too. Sometimes documentaries are only being made for people who watch documentaries. Mm-hmm. 
right? Which is kind of a tricky thing because it, what it means is that if it's an issues-based documentary, the people who are likely to sit down and watch a 90-minute documentary outside of a school or an institution where something's being decided for you are typically people who already somewhat have an interest or bias toward that issue. Yes, 100%. And so where do we need to show these sorts of pieces of content? How do we get them into more places? How do we get them into more audiences? How do we present them to audiences where the behavioural change can be more significant, can make a difference, can shift both in terms of its support for local causes as well as for our awareness for what the products stand for? So I think anything now has to be, you know, to use a cliche term in the advertising world, has to be some sort of ecosystem of content, not just a sole commercial campaign that just goes directly to, to broadcast on YouTube. Fully agree. We can actually use that as our transition point to go back to that criteria because we do talk about that as well. Um, My one other note as a Dove consumer versus not, I think it's also how your purchasing decisions are made um, based on what issue area is potentially most important. Personally, I am very strong in believing in supporting issues around women's empowerment, which is why I love the Dove campaign so much. But specifically when it comes to certain products, i purchase based on sustainability qualities first. Yeah. And so until Dove sustainability measures match the other products I'm purchasing, that is outweighing my decision power. So I think there's also, there's so many things to consider in that sense, right? But I yeah. think it's also why sustainability is becoming so important <laughs> across the board and why all brands need to yeah. do that. I think about that too, Alana, whoever is going to make, you know, the compostable packaging first, or something that's going to speak to your values as well as price points. Totally. Yeah. That's the win-win. Like if Dove had a refill station in my local Target and I could just put my little Dove container in there, my glass bottle and get a refill, you got me, I'm in. (laughs) I know you're sourcing your materials from the right place and you show palm oil, this, that, whatever, like we could talk. So it's, (laughs) it's interesting, you know, what values come to the forefront in that sense. Oh, I was just going to say in terms of the broadcast, I think that is such an interesting, important point that we talk about a lot as well is that the storytelling piece of it, making the broadcast spot, it's great and a a great tool to get your story out there, but it should never be the end all be all and only thing because at that point it becomes very performative a lot of the times. And that's why we place so much value on the call to action or on what sort of engagement opportunities are available beyond that. Are there experiential activations that make sense as a piece of that? What other ways can you interact with your consumer to share the message and bring them along on that journey with you? And and employees for that matter too, right? And employees as well, yeah. If it's only external and you're not doing anything internal, then what are you doing? (laughs) Uh, Can I just say on that issue, I think sometimes there are major campaigns that come out and the people in the organization haven't seen them before the public is getting to see them and I and when and that was the other thing that was so beautiful about the uh, to go back to Aflac again Mm. but to that my special Aflac duck campaign is that we produced a different version of the spot to show to internal stakeholders within the Aflac organization first and they got to see it I don't remember if it was 24 48 hours prior to it being launched to the public because everyone wanted to keep it under wraps anyway. So that's why it was like kind of secretly done because it was such an incredible project and so much had been invested in it that it needed to be have a level of secrecy around it. But when the time came to put it out into the world, 
sharing it with your net internal network first yes. puts a really beautiful sense of to go back to trust sense of trust in them but also enlists them as ambassadors and spokespeople who can then get excited about this pending release of this campaign or this spot and then they're proud of it and able to share it with you and see the look on your face and get the benefit of giving that to you and I just thought that that was so remarkable that I always want to do that with every campaign or everything we do as I love to have people see it internally to give them the chance of knowing that they're the people who make this happen and are being kind of counted on for making sure it goes out to the world with them as ambassadors for it before it goes to the wider public. And I just thought that that was a really remarkable thing to do that I had not seen or considered before that moment. Yeah, that's so important because your employees can be your biggest brand ambassadors if you bring them in, right? And so often I think they do get left behind and they are the ones doing that work day to day internally too. Yeah, and it it gives them something to rally around and like you said, be proud of. And that's huge. And that's a recruiting tool. That's also retention, right? It's saying, yes, you align with my values And I am proud to work at this company because of that. Yeah, but just a way for the company to also say, we're proud of you and we trust you and we want to do this with you, which I think a lot of companies forget to do. So 100%. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. Okay, last question regarding Heineken and then we can tie the bow. What would you say, Elliot, do you think is a missed opportunity for good there or something they could have done to have an even greater impact uh, with that campaign? Yeah, I think easily having a call to action. You know, there was a little web link that popped up in the top corner of the video and it was just a kind of a drink responsibly link, <laughs> which was is something that I think they're all mandate, a lot of all the alcohol companies are mandated to put at some point in their video. Yeah. But I, having a place to go where maybe you can have where you can bump into people. I like to think of the platform experience where it's, okay, as a result of this, we're inviting everybody to log on to this platform where you'll get these eight-minute or five-minute or three-minute speed dates, essentially, with people from all over the world and get to talk about who you are and maybe by the end of that five minutes, you have to find something in common between you. And I just thought, oh, that would have been so cool to do that. And uh, I kind of remember Lady Gaga, her early website and other things, she's technologically wise had set up this place where people from all over the world, her fans could message each other in their native language and it was automatically translated. And it was kind of like actually like a pretty impressive piece of innovation um, at the time. But I'm sure now with Google Translate and other things you could do it. But uh, it kind of struck me that this is something that is doable. You could have people getting on. I know Skype was using certain translation skills and other things as well, but there are tools now, Otter, you know, things that give you that closed captioning and, and other services that you can have. But having an opportunity to invite people to log on somewhere where they can bump into people literally from it opens your world up to that. And yeah. then you have these few minutes to find something in common. I thought it would be really freaking cool. So I think like that's yeah. something that I think could still happen. Yeah, you'll get some people who are, you know, 
bad actors, so right. to speak, going onto mm-hmm. the platform, I'm sure, trying to provoke and stoke, which also should be some sort of tagline for something. <laughs> 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 But I thought that was maybe a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a really cool idea. I love that. Like my mind's like going down the rabbit hole now. So join us on and they're they're actually. I was just reminded there is a nonprofit called UnifyAmerica.org, which tries to take people from different political standpoints and bring them together. There's a lot of pre work that you have to do. For that and you know you have to opt in and all that but I love that concept of just having random people come together to have conversations and and find some commonalities between the two I think that's great yeah it's interesting how many not like knockoffs on the concept but I feel like I've seen a few other um, campaigns or experiences or no other projects that have some different approach to this idea of a commonality and bringing people together from opposing viewpoints. Uh, someone who did in-person events around a sports team and they met, you know, on the field of that sports team or in their venue. And it was like, everyone was so hardcore fans, but then they had some topic to discuss and they were all coming from opposing viewpoints, but it was a group, you know, table discussion yeah. or someone else I know who uses the, when you do market research and you have the people behind the glass and, mm. you know, she has people watch each other from opposing viewpoints, and then brings them in for a discussion together. And, it's just interesting the different ways that you can bring people together and even just seeing more activations around that in person where people could come in and do some sort of shared activity yeah. and then be paired up. But I love this online platform idea. But it's a shame that all the bad actors of the world have, you know, made doing a lot of these online platform opportunities so difficult So because, I mean, social media platforms are getting brought down because of them. So because it could be such a great tool to use to bring people together. Yeah, I guess there's some sort of signing in step logistically that identifies you or forces you to be identified. So you're less likely to act out for fear of repercussions. So I'm sure that can be solved. Totally. But I think it's such a cool concept. Well, thank you, Elliot, for joining us. This has been amazing. I know we've mentioned many times that we could talk for days and you have so many fantastic examples to share with us. Where can we direct folks to learn more about you and your work? is where we are perfectly inept we haven't had a website since 2016 so it's kind of like a if you know you know kind of situation but we are seeking to rectify that in the next kind of six months because we just feel like we should be doing things to increase the impact that we have we're kind of like the lawyer who doesn't have a will we're very good at not promoting ourselves and just promoting the collaborations so you can find me on linkedin uh if anyone wants to reach out or connect in that way we're always happy to collaborate with people who are working on amazing things so more bigger with good people it is a kind of our personal motto love it good So thank you for helping us to shine a light and learn from those who are doing it well and reduce the missed opportunities for good. We want to hear from you listeners. Let us know what campaigns are you seeing that are doing it well? Who would you like to see us interview and what campaigns would you like us to audit? Thank you so much for joining us on our mission to revolutionize the industry that we love. Missed Opportunities for Good is a production of Aligned for Impact and Love of Good. Oh, 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 oh,